you know, this work with music performance anxiety is helping me understand that as well. But to actually live that life and, and to actually have to play in, in a concert, I have to really be living out the strategies that I'm recommending for others and use them and implement them and, and get better at using them. Uh, and that's something that has given me a whole new lease on performing. It gives me like a reason to want to improve constantly and to to become as good as I can possibly be. Because the more I do that, the more, you know, that what I'm saying is is true. And the more I can I can actually help other people. I can say, see, it worked for me for this reason. These strategies are actually effective. Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. Daniel Ramchitan is a phenomenal classical guitarist, and this episode features some of his performances, as well as many valuable insights in his work as a performance coach and educator, and from his reflections on the significant challenges he's overcome in his life and career. Like all my episodes, this is available on your favorite podcast player, a video on YouTube, and the transcript, all linked to my website, leahroseman.com. I'm an independent podcaster, and I need my listeners' help to keep the series going. The link to my Ko-fi page is in the description. I really value these long-form conversations that allow for depth, and you can use the detailed timestamps if you prefer to jump to any topics or musical selection. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really, it's really great being here. Um, yeah, it's a real honor. I, you know, I've, I've seen uh, some of your other interviews with musicians as well so it's, it's really great to be on the podcast you know it's something I've always wanted to be part of uh, you know so it's, it's really great. We well, have such as um, an interesting story as well as being such a beautiful player and I know we're going to share some of your music a bit later and I'm just can't wait to dive into the whole music performance anxiety thing which has been such a huge thing for me but if we could just start more at the beginning because you p- experienced some real challenges growing up mm-hmm. in terms of um, your musical education and everything yeah i i mean uh you know uh it's it's something that i i don't usually talk about a lot it's something that i you know i i but i am very open about it when people ask you know it's because you know i i don't really want to be sometimes you have to camouflage sometimes you don't really want everybody to know how the barriers you experience because they actually expect less of you you know so that's something that uh because they know the stats you know, the statistics say that you're not supposed to, like, have a schizophrenic mom and then become a classical guitarist. It's not allowed to happen. You're not really allowed to be, like, grow up in a co-op or anything, housing. You know, we see a lot of minorities and people from all kinds of different gender minorities and different, um, uh, like, you know, sexual minorities, um, minorities from all different walks of life, but they're almost all rich. Like they almost all not rich. I mean, they're almost all middle class, right? At the very least. So it's very, very rare mm-hmm. when musicians are actually from like an actual lower class background with no property or anything. This is a very strange world. And, and it's something that I, I didn't really think was weird mm-hmm. until I got older. You know, I think when it really hit me hard, I was starting to get an idea um, I, I started to see some patterns. I started to feel like I was a little bit different uh, in terms of my background, you know, when I came to music school, because there were obviously cultural differences and stuff. And uh, one thing I noticed was when I went to the national music competition uh, the first time uh, and the second time, and I noticed that 
that uh, everyone there was like fabulously wealthy from my perspective. Mm -hmm. This is how I, I used to see middle class people. I used to think they were, yeah. they were really rich. That's how I used to think. So, so I, I didn't really understand that I, I was really as poor as I was maybe mm -hmm. um, when growing up. So I, I, I was really shocked um, by how, how wealthy everyone was and, and how much support they had. Um, you know, their parents were like, you know, they were being flown in to do the competition, which I was as well, you know, so I afforded to go. And um, uh, I noticed that they, you know, they all had their parents there somehow. <laughs> Mm -hmm. so don't you live in Nova Scotia? How is that even possible? <laughs> it's like, <Yeah. laughs> there's no way my parents would be able to do that. So, in, and they would have loved to. They would, they would, and I think that's what, what I was very lucky for. That's something I'm very grateful for. Like, my parents were very dedicated to me realizing the ridiculous dreams that I had. And then also being like responsible enough parents to like not make me as aware as I could be of my situation to not say, you know, you can't do it because of this situation. There's no way you're going to ever make it work. Yeah. This, this is not true. I mean, this is not, not what they did. And, and so, yeah, there's like a price to pay to be that kind of person. You have to be kind of psychotically obsessed with music. I mean, I, I think, I think I'm a healthy, well-adjusted person otherwise in my current life, but um, you, you know, I might dis describe myself as unhinged for a lot of my life. Yeah. You know, like, you know, just really just people would say, like, what are you doing? Get out of my way. I need to practice. <laughs> I used to be this kind of person. And I, I had to uh, be like that in order to get anywhere. And I, I think it's unfortunate that it had to be like that, but I'm, I'm glad that I can, you know, I've, you know, any relationships I've damaged or things I've, I've worked hard to repair those. So your dad was an immigrant from Trinidad, Tobago. Yes. Yes. And he felt like you could do this, but you better be the best. So there was like a certain pressure. He's incredibly supportive. So he's always been like a cheerleader or whatever. Mm -hmm. He's always been like there for me in all kinds of different ways. Uh, but he is very, uh, you know, he's, he's a working class guy and he doesn't, say things uh, in diplomatic ways. <laughs> so, so when he was, when I was younger, you know, I would do a comp concert and I'd play for something. And um, if I made a few mistakes or something, he'd be like, he'd be like you know, a lot of expletives, you know, just like, what was that? You know, <laughs> just, you know, what are you doing? Like, come on, don't you actually want to do this? Like, what are you doing? Do you realize what you have to do? You know, and I don't think he really knew what I had to do, yeah. but I, I think he, he knew enough to know that, you know, I had to really try, I had to work a little harder than the other kids. I, I had to do things differently uh, mm -hmm. if I was gonna get similar results. Um, to be on par with them in terms of opportunities, I would have to work twice as hard. You know, so that's that's how he would, and everybody works hard. There's no people, uh, uh, very few people I've met that don't work hard in music. But um, I, I think uh, it it meant it meant having to exclude other things from my life. It was just having to, you know, not let distractions affect me. Was yeah. So your dad, I was curious because Trinidad Tobago is a huge um, percentage of people from an Indian background. Was it like the indentured laborers that were brought over? Was it part of that? 
colonial. Yeah, so um, yeah, so it, it's part of a, it was from the former British Empire, um, and they uh, gained independence from in 1962. Mm -hmm. So my dad actually was born a British citizen. When he became older, uh, he you know he was like three years old, I think. <laughs> not older he they, they they got independence and so uh my grandfather i guess was uh worked in the sugarcane mm -hmm. but he actually made a life for himself like a quite 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 nice life for himself uh, and he's really uh on on all sides of my family one of the most inspirational people that i've ever met he he's kind of the reason i became a vegetarian and all these other things so so he He's a, he, he spoke Hindi, he learned Sanskrit, he could read it fluently. Hmm. And he was a very, very interesting person. He was a devout Hindu. And he came to visit us in Canada at the age of about, I think he was in his 80s at that point. Hmm. And when he came to visit, he had never left his island before. He never left Trinidad, which is surprising. Because he was quite a cultured person. And he, he came to Canada just to visit my dad and then he ended up staying with um with me and my mom even though my parents were divorced mm -hmm. uh and he spent like a month with us and and i i saw his life and i i had always wanted to be vegetarian and so he he kind of talked to me and i said how do you do it and he said oh, i just don't contribute to that and i said wow that's a great idea <laughs> so i just i just decided you know i'm gonna, gonna do that um so yeah, Tr Trinidad is a very interesting place, and Trinidad is a, a really like um, a, a truly multicultural society. Uh, and because of the size of Trinidad, you know, it's it's not it's about the size of Hamilton. Okay. <laughs> it's not really very, very big. It's not very big because Trinidad is so small, uh, and and there are so many different communities that coexist. There's, uh, there's a Jewish community, there's a Muslim community, there's a Hindu community, there's a Christian community, and they're all actually forced to kind of integrate. They can't, they can't actually um, like be separated from each other or live in silos where they don't acknowledge each other's existence. Mm -hmm. So they, they celebrate Diwali, they celebrate all of the different, you know, Ramadan, they celebrate all of these different uh, events and and many Muslims go to Hindu schools or Hindus go to Christian schools and and so on and and so this is is actually a lot of uh, cross cultural pollination. So if you talk to most people from Trinidad, they'll be able to tell you a lot about every world religion and tell you some really compelling arguments uh, from from all of the different perspectives of those different religions. And I think that's a very fascinating thing. So that's something I, I always really admired about Trinidad. Um, and so uh, my dad grew up in that environment. And so he was able to find the classical guitar through his British teachers. And he thought that was a really great thing, uh, even though he never learned it himself. Mm -hmm. And so when I was younger, he just had this, maybe, maybe this is a white supremacist construct or something, but he thought, you know, this is the best type of guitar. And I don't agree, but that's what he thought. And so he said, I think you should start with classical guitar. And so that's how I, I started. And uh, yeah, and I, I, I became uh, kind of serious about it very quickly. I read your dissertation mostly. And, and wow. one of the things that came up that it was interesting is um, Segovia, being, Segovia being a tyrannical teacher. And also when I was 
doing research on him that he was quite racist about flamenco music and wanted to 100%. eliminate it from the guitar repertoire. Yeah, he said one of his primary goals in life was to save the guitar from the hands of the flamenco guitarists. Yeah. You know, and, and this is really like, a, a, you know, I mean, Segovia, before I, I have to say this caveat, because I, I, I do have the un unpopular opinion that we can separate artists from their beliefs sometimes, uh, you know, and I think that what he accomplished for the classical guitar was special. Mm -hmm. He did offer something. He did make it a concert instrument. He did convince, you know, we have, we have schools for music all over the world. And every major conservatory has, well, with some very notable exceptions, has a classical guitar program. And that's because of Segovia. And that was one of his primary goals in life. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a meaningful thing. Uh, and he, you know, he still, by today's standards, he, he has done some impressive things in terms of, you know, his understanding of color and, and, you know, all these different things. And, and he's, he was denounced for a while. And now we're starting to understand his perspectives in some ways and uh, in terms of his technical abilities and things. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's coming back, you know, in, in some ways, but also we, we see him for the man he was, and we see the flaws in his approach and his pedagogy and his ideology mm -hmm. um which was strongly influenced by franco's spain uh which was a, a fascist it was a fascist dictatorship until 1975 and so segovia was an avid supporter of franco and he harbored a lot of his uh kind of neo-colonial views he believed that we could you know, he could bring back Spain and bring back Spain's glory from the times when they were, you know, um, so he, he really had that going on. And so the flamenco guitar to him was this kind of, you know, yeah, it, he wasn't, he was not able to understand how they yeah. perceived the world. And, but now we know that flamenco guitarists, any guitarists worth his salt, any good classical guitarists worth their salt will spend some time with classical with flamenco guitarists and try to understand what they're doing because their technical achievements are incredible they're able to do things that you know their skills their uh, approach to sound their uh, you know so many of their technical abilities are, are far above the average classical guitarist uh, even when someone has only been training flamenco guitar for a short time so this is something that you know we all need to learn a little about. And that piece, Catharsis, um, on my album, is written by Raphael Wainwright Brown, who studied flamenco guitar. He never studied classical guitar. Uh, yeah. I mean, we know him as a cellist, and, and anybody in, in Ottawa who knows Raph, uh, or anyone around the world for that matter who knows Raph, uh, will know him as a cellist most likely. But he is a multi-instrumentalist, and so he wrote the piece uh, from the perspective of a flamenco guitarist trying to introduce it to classical guitarists mm -hmm. and this is this is fascinating because even when i first approached it you know the, the opening of it is, is is it's like you know it, he's we're using rasciados and things like this and he would always say no you have to do it like this and he would always show me how to do rasciados better <laughs> things like this and he's a very very good guitarist Daniel has shared a track from his album, Inspirations, New Music for Solo Guitar.
Later in this episode, there are two more of Daniel's guitar performances, including a video for those of you watching. Check out the timestamps to navigate this episode. This first track is the first movement, entitled Ire from Catharsis, by Raphael Weinroth-Brown, who is a previous guest of this series, and is known worldwide as a versatile and powerful cellist. Raph has written that, quote, Catharsis was written in late 2012 at the request of my friend François Bergeron. It is a highly virtuosic piece that incorporates elements from progressive metal, flamenco, and Middle Eastern music. Thematically, it deals with transcending inner struggles and moving beyond past trauma and loss. Ire is pure anger. It is reactive and fiery. Thank you. 
Hi, just a quick break from the episode. I'm an independent podcaster who does all the many jobs required to produce the series, and there are a lot of costs I bear as well. Please consider either buying me a virtual coffee as a tip or becoming a monthly supporter starting at $3 Canadian, which is close to $2 US or 2 euros, and getting access to unique perks. The link is in the description. Now back to the episode. Um, with you know not a lot of training in flamenco guitar comparatively, but he's a brilliant guitarist as a result of his flamenco training. And this is something I've, I've noticed. I've had to study with flamenco guitarists as well um, uh, for short periods of time and, and learn from them as well. So, you know, it's really antithetical to the way Segovia used to see things. Yeah. He would say that, you, you know, this pollination which should be forbidden, you know, but we have so much to learn from them. And in fact, you know, classical guitarists do have a lot to offer flamenco guitar as well. And you see people like Vicente Amigo um, taking ideas from classical guitarists and, and trying to polish their sound in certain ways to get certain effects, not because they're trying to correct their sound, but because the, the kind of polished, warm sound that you get from classical guitar is not always heard in flamenco guitar. So bringing that into flamenco has benefited flamenco guitar bringing the technical expertise of flamenco into classical guitar has made classical guitar technique uh, expand and, and reach new heights mm -hmm. and so we have something to learn from everyone we have something to learn from prog metal we have something to learn from every single discipline possible so yeah yeah and i think segovia was kind of not not ready in his time for that he was he was afraid of the electric guitar he didn't even know how to respond to it when you know his protege john williams openly embraced the classical guitar and you started mean, a rock band called sky which he yeah. used to tour with so it's it's very interesting to see how how the world has changed since since segovia's time you said when john williams embraced the classical guitar you meant to say when he embraced the electric guitar I said, yeah, when he embraced the electric guitar. No, not a lot of people know this, actually. Um, maybe yeah, even yeah. diehard classical guitarists don't know about yeah. uh, John Williams, uh, the, the guitarist, not to be confused with the film composer. Not a lot of people know about Sky, uh, which was his side project that he created. I, I think it was amazing that John Williams, you know, he told the world, because he was at such a high level as a guitarist that no one could deny him. You know, he was able to say, I can do multiple things. I can be a versatile musician. I can try to communicate with every single type of musician and try to understand something from everyone and bring that into my playing. And I think that that was really amazing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just talk about Julian Bream for a minute because oh, the, yes. the Leo Brower Sonata, we're going to share a movement of, um, it was dedicated to to Julian Bream. Yes, the late he, Julian Bream. We yeah, lost when him was, during the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. But he this was written in 1990, so he would mm -hmm. still be. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so Leo Brower wrote this for Julian Bream uh, a long time ago. And, and actually, Julian Bream didn't record it for, for a bit after that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I haven't really listened to Julian Bream's recording of it because it's very hard to find. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, uh, it's become a kind of staple of the guitar repertoire, this piece. Uh, it was just called the Brower Sonata for a while. And now Brower has written six sonatas for guitar, and they're all incredible. But this is the one that is probably the most popular of his sonatas as a result of being the first. 
And mm -hmm. so uh, I really wanted to record this for many years. I, I first studied it in my master's and I, you know, I wanted to bring it back. And so I contacted Drew Henderson and, and uh, who was the producer for my album. He, he did the, the audio engineering for it. And he's a great videographer as well. So he recorded this in the Church of St. Mary Magdalene and uh, was very excited to, to play it. It was amazing, you know, this piece was something that I have been playing for many years, but uh, stopped playing for a while and then brought back. And uh, recently this summer, I went to Trinidad and Tobago, which I was mentioning earlier, and I went to a place called Karani Swamp, which is uh, a beautiful nature reserve and has uh, a bird sanctuary in it. And they have the Scarlet Ibis, which is the famous Trinidad uh, bird they have flamingos there that were there when we saw them it was amazing uh they have all these different beautiful birds uh, and i was so fascinated by the calls that they make and the sounds that i was hearing in that part of the caribbean which is just so much more so much different than the kind of sounds you would hear in the forest in canada mm -hmm. and i i realized of course leo brower is from cuba this is the caribbean this is not really that far away from the world that he would naturally hear. And this music suddenly made so much more sense to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the different bird call, it's the different motifs in it are, are really just bird calls. Uh, and it kind of reminds you of messianic moments for that reason. But there's, uh, there's a, a lot of beautiful things. He intersperses these Cuban rhythms with this, uh, these bird calls in it. It's, it's beautiful. So. Yeah, so it's ironic, you know, uh, he, all the movements in this work are, they have, they have odd names. The first movement is called Fandangos y Boleros, which is, these are different Spanish uh, dance genres. Mm -hmm. And then the second movement is Sarabanda de Scriabin. Yeah. And the third movement is, is uh, Takada de Pasquini. So it's, uh, they're all written in this style, but with Brower's unique language. And uh, yeah, so I think it's, very well done. It's a great mm -hmm. composition. Here is the Toccata de Pasquini, the third movement of the sonata by Leo Brower, performed by Daniel Ramshatan. You can find the rest of the sonata on his YouTube channel.
And he's endorsed your recording, I noticed it said. Yes, yes, his manager contacted me the other day and said, yeah, we want to congratulate you on what you're doing, but also uh, you should let us know when you're doing this <laughs> because of copyright things. And so I was glad they authorized the recording. Yeah, that's excellent. Officially. Maybe we should uh, delve into your, your dissertation and your research on of performance course. anxiety. I was in some of the books you referenced, I had read quite a few of them in my quest to get over, not over, but deal with my performance anxiety. Man. So actually yeah. Madeline Bruiser is going to be a guest very soon on this Excellent. Yeah. series I as believe, well. I believe I have her book <laughs> just sitting on my shelf. Yeah. <laughs> so that's funny. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The Art of Practicing. Yes. And, and Gerald Klickstein, I'd actually tried... I reached out to him with no answer. I was hoping to have him to but yeah. that book, I think is really great. Yeah, he's he's less active these days, but he had that book is a, an incredible resource for anyone who wants to understand music performance anxiety, because it's written from the heuristic perspective of a classical guitarist and and musician. It's not really directed at classical guitarists, it's for musicians. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just really one of the most useful resources you can ever have as a musician, I think, you know. So uh, it teaches people how to approach ensemble playing for gigs and just be organized. It teaches people how to make a practice journal, very basic things. But uh, the discussion on music performance anxiety was probably the most comprehensive discussion of it that we saw in any of the guitar literature written by classical guitar professors. That was what my dissertation found. That was what I was focusing on in my dissertation. So uh, yeah, he, he really, it, he's, he's a great, he has a really deep insight on that from, from many different perspectives, from a scientific perspective and a heuristic perspective. Could you remind me of the title of the book so it's people know? Yeah, it's right, it's right here. Musician, yeah. Musician's Way, a Guide to Practice, Performance and Wellness. Although when I was reading it, I remember when he was talking about choosing appropriate repertoire so it's not too difficult, so you mm -hmm. have things you're performing that are kind of in your wheelhouse. And I thought, you don't know what it's like to be an orchestra musician. You don't get of to course. pick anything. <laughs> it's a totally different thing. Yeah, that's, that's challenging. That's a really challenging situation because for many orchestral musicians, they're probably thrown into situations that they're not nearly prepared for and then they just have to adjust. And so they never really get that comfort that they would get as, as at, a, at a different level. And so you see, actually, that's very consistent with the research because we find that undergrad musicians 
tend to experience more prominent music performance anxiety compared to professionals, which is not really that surprising in some ways, but it, it's partly that professionals have gotten a handle over the repertoire and they more, more or less know the, the really challenging excerpts, having had to do auditions and all these different things. So it's more approachable for them. So the actual component of music performance anxiety that's preparation related is dealt with. Whereas if you ask someone to prepare something that's far beyond their level, they're going to get anxious as whether they have music performance anxiety or not. I mean, that's just yeah. anxiety ridden activity. I mean, that's, that's I think the definition of stress. It's, you know, you don't have enough resources to accommodate the task. Mm -hmm. I just I just wonder, Daniel, if there's a little bit of attrition going on there because just so many people end up dropping out or do something different. So yeah, I mean, the people that they're checking who are actually are successful enough to be working professionally are the ones who succeeded at dealing with it. Yeah, processing. 100%. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. There's there's a survival bias. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and we we don't really know what um, what people who have the most powerful examples of music performance anxiety or the most prominent or debilitating forms of performance anxiety. We don't always know uh, how they approach it because they, they may have just left the field. And yeah, it's a, it's a scary, it's a scary thing to think about actually. Mm -hmm. So and I think it's a prevent, it's a prevention problem. I think in that, in that perspective, I, I don't, I don't really believe that anyone can, I don't believe it's like a syndrome that you, you acquire from the air and then suddenly uh, it, it becomes worse, like general anxiety. I don't think it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's a specific task related thing. Yeah. So if music performance anxiety manifests, uh, it's in my opinion, preventable. Mm -hmm. And there are many factors that lead to music performance anxiety, which range from teachers, which range to mindset, range from parents' influence, range from all these other things that happen at the very first music lessons. Um, and I, we also see that the most ambitious, some of the most ambitious, aggressive players, just this is something I've noticed, they, the most competitive players, um, they tend to be uh, riddled with music performance anxiety because they're always tackling repertoire that's above their level. Uh, and this is a, a challenging situation because if, when you see an ambitious student like that as a teacher, you always want to help them. You always want to you know, help them realize their goals, but sometimes they take on more than they can chew and they become overwhelmed. And this is challenging too. If they're aiming for perfection, but if they're you know what I mean? It, it kind of depends on the goals of the student. Mm -hmm, if they're mm -hmm. exploring music as a really fun hobby and they just want to play their favorite pieces, even if it, they can't quite handle it technically, mm -hmm. that's a different mindset than someone who really wants to perfect it, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and I guess one, one of the challenges of my dissertation is that I, I focus on people who are doing an undergraduate in music. Mm -hmm. So I, a lot of those people are going to have professional aspirations in one way or another yeah uh, in a different way that you might experience in a typical music studio mm -hmm. or with a, an older student that you work with that 
is just really passionate about music and is learning it as a hobby like you're describing yeah yeah I was if we could just circle back a little bit um, to your life, I was really I have to say, I hope a version of your dissertation could be published one day that's less academic and more, you know, you have so much so many of your personal stories and mm -hmm. insights. Um, that would be amazing. Anyway, your story about when you went to do your ill fated masters in Florida. Oh, yeah. If you could share that. Oh, uh, you know, I was living on borrowed dreams for a long time as a classical guitarist. And I don't know how I survived with no money for so long. It was basically loans and grants and things and, and just odd jobs and bizarre admin work and things like this. It was not really like I could afford to even be going to music school. I mean, I, I was drinking one coffee a day and just hopping on the bus illegally. <laughs> Don't tell us OC Transpo, but you know, all these kinds of things. Um, and so when I when I went to Florida State, I was like, I'm going to go to the United States and study. I remember my my girlfriend at the time who I was dating. She 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 thought this was a crazy idea, and she was right. Um, uh, and she she said, you know, I, what are you going to do? Are you going to have a job? Like, what are you going? You don't even drive, like. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm gonna ride my bike, it'll be fine. Like, didn't really learn anything about the local culture. I didn't really, I visited for my audition. I didn't really know anything about what I was getting myself into. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't appreciate the, the culture shock that I was going to experience between Northern Florida, which is different than Southern Florida and, and this part of Canada. I mm -hmm. really was not ready for that culture shock. I, I kind of assumed that the cultures were more or less gradients of each other if you know what i mean like not that different you know i would expect a, a culture shock going to japan yeah but not florida uh whereas the opposite is what i've found yeah when i when i traveled there i i you know i had to get a visa to go to the us which you you need to have like someone claim that they have twenty thousand dollars in their bank account mm. and a very uh very kind woman from stratford uh, who had seen my concerts, who I'd never actually met before, but had seen me play many times, actually very kindly just said, you know, I can sponsor this person. I can, I can just, she didn't give me money to go, but she just said, I can allow them to go. And, you know, so I, I, I went in against all better judgment and I stayed for a semester. And at, at the end of it, I, I applied to like 40 jobs and I got a job finally that was on campus that I was allowed to work on. It was Dunkin' Donuts. Anyway, I, I went there and they called me and they're like, oh, we want to give you an interview to come and, and, and work for Dunkin' Donuts. And this was December and I had applied for 40 jobs about at this mm -hmm. time. And I decided either I'm going to go back to Canada with the little money I have left or I'm gonna hope to the Lord that I can finish this program uh, by, you know, just working at this job and just scraping up enough for the second semester, and then somehow getting my tuition paid and all these things. And they brought me in and I had the interview, and they're so patronizing. They're like, we we just want to give you a chance, <laughs> like. Like we see where you're coming from and we just want to give you a chance. Oh. And I think this is our time to, <laughs> to, 
to have you come in. <laughs> and I couldn't believe that I was doing this as I was doing it. You know, you have this kind of out of body moments where you watch yourself acting in a way and you're surprised that it's happening. But I literally was talking to them and I said, you know what? I'm wasting your time. I don't want to be here. I don't want this job. No part of me wants to be in this this state. I, I don't need to be in this country. Like, like life doesn't have to be this hard. I can start over and pick up the pieces and keep going. And I don't need to be here. And, and they're like, what? And I was like, no, I don't want the job. And I just walked away. <laughs> Um, and then I just, and I, and, I, and I made up my mind then, it really clarified my decision. And I just took that money that I had, I got on a plane, came back to Canada after the first semester. And then I uh, stayed in Stratford for eight months, did some ad admin work there, um, had a very confusing time, did some concerts. And then I came back to Ottawa during my master's and started again with Patrick Rue, who is a great teacher. I had a TA ship there and I had a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have because I went there. I received this Nalini Pereira scholarship, which was fantastic. And it allowed me to go to Italy and study with, um, you know, one of the greatest guitarists that's ever lived, Lorenzo Michele, and, and follow him around um, in, in Italy and in uh, Austria. And this, this was an amazing experience that I, I don't think I would have had if I went to Florida State, which is a great school for music. I mean, one of the greatest schools uh, for classical guitar that's ever existed. I mean, my teacher there, Bruce Holtzman, I mean, I had a very, very close connection with him. He was, you know, I was very, very I, I still feel very close to him. He's influenced me in ways that I'm still unwrapping uh, in, in a positive way. Yeah, it would have been great to stay with him, but I think life had other plans for me. I think that it worked out yeah. once I was willing to accept that. Yeah. And I was interested to read that when you went first went back, you were just busking and that helped break down some of your anxiety because it didn't have to be so perfect. Yeah, I mean, there's something that I, I noticed was that when we go to music school, and this was something I, I, I by the way, I had been busking like when I was in, okay. you know, in high school, I was busking regularly in the summers because there's, there's a large busking scene in Stratford and it, it is actually predominantly by classical musicians. Mm -hmm. Busking by the festival and by the Avon Theater and the, the Stratford Theater and the main plaza and the center. And so I was doing that. Uh, and I had been very accustomed to that. So all these very difficult pieces that I was playing, I was able to run them multiple times mm -hmm. for captive audiences. Some of them were more paying attention than others. And, you know, and this experience, I don't think it refined my playing by any stretch and i think that was the drawback of it it really kind of made that more difficult mm -hmm. but it allowed me to get to a point where i could just play through large amounts of repertoire and become very very comfortable with being on stage in front of other people for long periods of time and i would do this i, I got a lot of hours in you know everyone has to do this at one point i i found them um, you know like it was a really funny story in the book outliers by malcolm gladwell he talks about the beatles mm -hmm. and when the beatles were first uh playing gigs they apparently were not very good uh, by anyone's account and they were eventually got this very strange gig at a strip club and they had to play for eight hours 
multiple times per week. They had to do eight hour gigs. I, I couldn't imagine this today and playing together. And so they would have to kind of whip all this music together. And a lot of times they were improvising together, making songs on the spot and things like this. And eventually they became so good that of course, you know, the rest is history, right? And I, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to that, but I think that was like a nice moment in my life where I was able to rediscover this challenging repertoire that I had spent all this time learning. And of course, the difference between me in high school and the person I was after my undergrad was vastly different, especially after my training with Bruce Holtzman. So I was actually had a certain level of refinement in my playing at this point, I, I thought. And so I was playing pieces like the Bach Chacon and playing, you know, the Merit's Elegy and many pieces that I still play in concert today and playing those for an audience of you know, just people going to the theater. And, and so sometimes people would come by and say, well, what are you doing here? You know, why are you doing this? This is, you're not like a little kid playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It's not, uh, you know, uh, but I, I thought it, it let me connect with all different types of audiences, which was very nice. I didn't have to connect with the typical classical music audience that we see, which is uh, comprised almost exclusively of performers and other players or former music students, and just enthusiasts of classical music, people who are already, you know, very knowledgeable about the repertoire and very engaged with it and, and really love it. And so I was able to, you know, deal with working class people who had no knowledge of classical music and be able to talk to them and have a regular conversation with them and and just share that with them. And, and I found that the music truly is universal. You know, they, they respond differently to the pieces that we consider great, you know, like the Bach Chacon. I mean, I, I find that, you know, I used to play that after parties. I would go have a party and people come over to my place after in the middle of the night. And I just play the boxer cone for them. And this is not something I would normally do in any other place. But during that time, and I, I, I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about the way I wanted to approach music and how I wanted to connect with people. And so bringing that forward into a place where I'm returning again to playing prim predominantly in these refined settings or whatever, I find that I have a different perspective on it. And I find that I, I can um, prevent myself from succumbing to pretentiousness and uh, the kind of barriers and gatekeeping that I often see happening in the field uh, in, in the worst scenarios. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I think sometimes people don't realize the, there's a great variety of, of musicians who, who busk. And I remember when I was in high school and I was playing some, some solo Bach actually here in Ottawa, and this man came up to me, I think he interrupted me, and he said, I don't know if you realize how good you are. You, you, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. I said, well, I'm just earning some money, and, you know, if you want to listen. And he said, no, but you should go into music, you know, as a professional. I said, well, that's the idea. <laughs> we had this little discussion. He actually gave me a pretty nice tip at the time, but I was just, uh, his his attitude was kind of weird. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I know, and, and I, I saw one older man who was a like, you know, a person who had been following my life for a long time, who I greatly respected, who was very, you know, enthusiast of the arts, came up to me and he's like, playing on the street, huh? <laughs> Just walked away. I've never really had that before. But that was that was a funny moment. 
that I will not forget. And I, I think that was a portrait of the the gatekeeping that we see, you know. I I I don't think the gatekeeping is is related to standards. I don't think it's related to these sorts of things. I think it's related to communities. And I think that's where it's truly problematic. Mm -hmm. It's when one community silos itself off from the rest and refuses to communicate with the others. And I think it fosters resentment and and miscommunication and uh, a lot of divisiveness that you wouldn't see otherwise. You know, I, I, I have found that some of the most uh, like, you know, unpretentious people I can possibly find really love classical music when they listen to it. If you just play for them and don't try to make it this, this thing that they have to worship. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they really enjoy it because everyone understands emotion. Nobody, nobody doesn't understand emotion. Mm -hmm. So if you just play with passion and you play with feeling and I, I think people respond to it and, and uh, it doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter where they come from. And that's what I noticed. I mean, from my background, I'm, I'm being told that what I'm doing is, is for like a, a class that I've never been part of, that I've never been really connected to like this kind of rich upper class society that I was never <laughs> really a part of. Um, I was adjacent to in various times of my life as a result of classical music, maybe, but I, I never really was connected to that world. And um, I, I'm being told that I'm part of that and it's not true. <laughs> it's just not true. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting. So yeah. another one of your um, recordings we're going to share is actually by your wife, the composer and percussionist, yes. Naoko, uh, can you say her last name? Sujita. Sujita. Yeah. So there, there's two Gamelan inspired pieces. I thought we'd share number two. Um, yes. Is there other of her music that she's written for guitar that you've played or? Um, actually, this was her first piece that she wrote for classical guitar, and I, she hasn't written anything else yet, but she's writing another piece for uh, a great guitarist named Yelitsa Mianovich, uh, who is here in Toronto, uh, um, uh, guitarist from Montenegro. And uh, Nako is a, a great musician by all, you know, uh, all, all rights, and she actually never wrote this piece for me. She, yeah. she wrote this piece originally for James Rennick who is a, a, a classical guitarist who recently moved to Montreal. And when she wrote this piece, uh, it was part of the Class Axe Guitar Workshop, which was organized by the Canadian Music Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, Naoko is a real gamelan enthusiast. I mean, I think she's a kind of metallophone <laughs> enthusiast. She's obsessed with everything that's bell-like. And uh, she, she doesn't, she's not very talkative in general, but she will talk for long, long extended periods about bells of any kind. And she's very, very connected to Indonesian gamelan music. She plays uh, regularly with the Evergreen Gamelan Club here in Toronto. And so she's done many different things with the gamelan and she also plays the carillon as well. So mm -hmm. she's most well known as a composer for the carillon. She's won numerous awards for her carillon works. And so, you know, the carillon is so connected to the guitar in its orchestration. A lot of music from guitar is surprising, is news to me, is actually uh, played by carillonists. Okay. 
So they, they take our, our repertoire and they, they play, which is fascinating to me. And, I, and this is also true of marimba, which is her, her instrument where she really uh, has, has become kind of virtuoso in that instrument. So uh, yeah, so it, it's some, it, she, she naturally wrote for guitar in a way that was just very authentic and idiomatic without really uh, having to try that hard for it. And, and anyone who's a composer will tell you that that's a very difficult thing to do to write idiomatically for guitar without being a guitarist. So yeah. I, I thought it was a very successful composition. I'm, I was really happy to play it, so. Here is Gamelan Suite, the second movement by Naoko Tsujita, performed by Daniel Ramjitan from his album, Inspirations. I, I saw some videos of yeah. her caroloning, and it occurs to me some of the listeners may not know what a carillon is. Yes. It, it, maybe you can explain it. Yeah, many classical musicians don't know what a carillon is. I, I, in fact, the truth is, the reason I know what a carillon is is because of Nalco. So a carillon is uh, uh, one of the most prominent carillon, carillons in, in Canada is actually in Ottawa, in the Peace Tower, mm -hmm. in Parliament. 
and it's a giant bell tower that has at least 22 bells and you they have a keyboard that's connected by wires and pulleys to these clappers these balls that are connected to different bells and these bells are very very large so the the lowest bell the lower the note the larger the bell is about three thousand pounds three tons it's amazing so she uh just plays these with her feet in her hands so she plays it like a keyboard uh but she can also play with her feet for the lower notes uh, uh like an organ and so they have these kind of broomstick like appendages that come up and you actually have to play them with your fist yeah they're punching down right? yeah yeah exactly because because you have to press hard enough to make this giant bell ring so and it's interesting because there's dynamic considerations um not all bells are tuned the same some of them are actually tuned like as low as a minor third below concert pitch mm -hmm. so it's very confusing to listen to and uh, as a player and, and when you're performing on the inside like you know she goes inside a giant bell tower she has to climb a long winding staircase up a tower and then walk across a plank it's very like it's very hitchcock vibes when you <laughs> see what she's doing and then she walks across and plays this giant instrument and you know it's it's amazing to see a lot of people don't really realize that they're hearing the carillon and a human is playing and it's not actually a computer or anything so uh, yeah, she she plays all kinds of repertoire on the carillon, many of her own compositions, but pieces by you know baroque composers, romantic composers, modern composers, uh, and and everything in between. So it's really amazing. Yeah, I I grew up in Ottawa, so I think when I was younger, I had the opportunity to um, see the carillon in action. I say this because then I think was it a video? No, I think it was. You know, I think I got to see when they were actually performing. And then I did my master's at Indiana University in the States, and they have a right. carillon there, so people study. And I remember walking across this quad or something and people practicing, and it just sounding terrible because if you miss, of course, mm. it's quite. So it's just instead of the polished version I had heard, you know, Peace Tower is like this, you know, cacophonous, someone actually practicing. Like, right, oh, right. And then she's she she plays, she has ring time regularly because we where we live here in Toronto, just by fortune, honestly, I have no idea how. We live right in the middle of the two main carillons in Toronto, mm -hmm. which is, it's amazing that Toronto has three carillons. Mm -hmm. um, one is sponsored by Budweiser, ironically. And, and, then, and then there's one in Metropolitan United Church, uh, just just south of here. And just north of here, there's uh, the one in the Soldier's Tower at the University of Toronto. So she regularly plays both of those carillons, uh, as well as her teacher does. And it's amazing to hear her play it because she's very, very good at it. She's gotten very good at it so fast because she was already a great musician when she started. So she's been playing for five years and the language of music was already very well known to her. So when she just had to figure out the technique and she's really become a kind of rising star in the carillon. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. maybe we could go back to uh, yes. to performance anxiety. There was a couple of little things um, that I read in your dissertation that I found super interesting. And they were sort of side mm -hmm. notes of other people's research. One of them was that people who took beta blockers habitually experienced more pain in terms of like injury, you know, because maybe they're 
sort of wound like I was kind of curious because if you're on beta blockers which we should explain what those are because non-musicians may not realize it's like a heart mm -hmm. drug that some people take at low dosages so that they don't get the physical manifestations of nerves you probably can yes. under explain it better than that yeah uh so it yeah it's exactly I mean you I, I don't need to add to yeah. that explanation that was great um and so uh yeah um so the the relationship to pain is probably not direct or causal. Mm -hmm. I think the situation in that study mm -hmm. is uh, identifying a core problem with beta blockers. And again, I, I don't advocate for beta blockers, but I don't advocate against them either. I, I do performance coaching with people. I, and if they take them, I don't tell them not to. I don't tell mm -hmm. them to, I don't, I would never tell someone to take them, but I would never tell someone to stop either. So it's, really a, a hard debate on on what the best thing to do is and what we notice with beta blockers is that the problem with them and the one that is most often cited is that they interfere with exposure now many musicians will tell me very quickly well it doesn't matter i don't need to be exposed to anxiety i'm anxious enough you don't need to train me to like fix this problem I got bigger things to worry about. I got way too much rep to learn. I don't have time to be dealing with this. Mm -hmm. Fair, like honestly fair. But if you are interested in getting to know what your anxiety has to say, if you are interested in getting to know what it can teach you about the way you respond to stress and the way that you react to stimuli, then beta blockers can interfere with that process because you have to fully experience the feeling and notice it mm -hmm. without judging yourself in order to um, desensitize yourself to the fear mm -hmm. just like any phobia i mean and we wouldn't do that all at once of course right i mean if someone is afraid of spiders we're not going to just say, oh, okay, well, the way I'm going to fix the problem is just throw you in a room full of spiders. It's <laughs> not going to fix it at all. What you do is you start very slowly. You actually start with images mm -hmm. or even having them imagine yeah. that they're, they see a spider in front of them and have just, they will naturally get the feelings and then gradually lead them to have a picture of a spider just kind of far away in the screen. And eventually the spider is closer and closer in the image, not a real spider yet. Eventually you graduate to actually at the final end of the, the, the treatment, you probably have a real spider there and the person can even hold the spider, which is not something I'm not even ready to do. So uh, with music, exposure goes in a similar way. So beta blockers interfere with that process because they don't allow you to fully experience the physiological sensations. Now, if I am able to go to a caveat about the physiological sensations that we have, including the cognitive sensations that we have when we, when we experience music performance anxiety, um, it, it really, to, to simplify it, it's really exactly like a tiger uh, attacking you, <laughs> right? Um, if, if a tiger is attacking you, uh, or you see an animal in the wild that is attacking you, your body is going to respond in a certain way. It's going to, you know, your, your heart rate is going to increase because you have to be able to run. 
you might need to escape. You might have a fight response, like I'm going to fight the target. It's probably a bad idea. You're going to have a flee response, like I should run away from this target. It's probably faster than you. Or you might have a flop response or a freeze response. Freeze response is like, I'm going to pretend the target doesn't see me. <laughs> um, and that's where our muscles tense up. Uh, the flop response is, I, I'm just going to play dead because there's no other options. And this is what happens when sometimes people experience cataplexy and stuff when they play, which is very rare. Uh, but you'll see people like vomit and they'll do, uh, Horowitz used to vomit before going on stage. This is partly a flop response uh, because you're just, you know, this, this is a kind of thing that happens. Uh, so anyway, um, when, when we have these kinds of responses, um, you, you, these are called arousal responses. And they can happen in varying severities, as we just said. But what's very fascinating about these arousal responses is that you can respond exactly the same way that you would when a tiger is attacking you versus when you see somebody on the street that you haven't seen in years that's like a good friend of yours. You know, when you're having a great experience watching a movie or you're really excited about something or during sex or during all these positive experiences in life, they can feel exactly the same from your body's perspective. The difference is that when we experience music performance anxiety, we have a negative interpretation of those arousal symptoms. So the same symptoms happen when we're excited. Like I'm talking to you in this interview, my heart's racing a bit because I'm excited to be talking and to be here. I'm pumped up about this, right? But I could experience the exact same symptoms and say, oh no, my heart rate is increasing. This must mean that something bad is going to happen because we've created that association. But it doesn't intrinsically mean that. It's a subjective interpretation of arousal symptoms. And it becomes particularly powerful when we try to escape the feeling. So when we, often you'll see people become desperate to make the feeling stop, like they have to just stop the piece and escape. And, and you, you yeah. So th this kind of thing is a very powerful example of us trying to escape that feeling. And when we avoid feelings, the irony is that they tend to come back stronger. Mm -hmm. And when we accept them and we name them and we get to know them with dispassionate curiosity, we actually, we don't always extinguish the symptoms because remember, it's not really good or bad that my heart rate is increasing or that I'm sweating or that I hold hands or whatever. It's not intrinsically bad. It's, it's an experience that I'm having. Um, eventually, you, you get to a point where those things don't go away, but you become accustomed to them and they no longer impair performance. Yeah. Which is, which is hard. It's hard to ask someone to do that, right? And, and that's why I say it's totally fair when people decide to take beta blockers. I mean, this is a long process and sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. And if someone is not willing to go through that process, it's a terrible idea to try to throw them into it. So if, if someone decides to use those strategies to help themselves, well, all the power to them, but that is the caveat, that is the challenge, that is the long-term problem that you invite when you don't allow 
exposure to take place. Mm. You know, and you may not even come into contact with, you know, all of the different factors that have led to caring so much about music, some of which are great and positive and meaningful. You know, music's been around for longer than we've had very basic things in life. You know, it's been around for 40,000 years, long before math or science or any of these things that we care so much about. <laughs> music is older than everything. <laughs> so, I was curious to ask you about improvisation because you'd yes. written that it's more recent for you, which it is for me as well. And it has mm. also helped me with um, my performance anxiety. I often improvise like on stage when the orchestra is warming up, I'll actually be right. improvising instead of playing what we're about to play. And it calms Excellent. me down quite a bit. Excellent. Yeah. Well, improvisation is, is uh, to put it very simply, kind of extension of, of the flexibility that seems to help people so much with managing music performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in terms of general wellness and well-being and all, all these different characteristics that we associate with mental health, having mental health, um, cognitive flexibility is one of those powerful things that we can develop in our life. And Improvising is an inherently flexible activity because you're constantly changing variables and adapting to them in real time. That's a very exciting thing. It's also a very terrible thing to do if you don't have much flexibility or you don't have the resources available to become more flexible in the moment. So it's not something that you would throw someone into if they've never done it before right away. Uh, if they're very reticent towards improvising, it's very good to just start from a very simple uh, scenario with very few variables. You know what, my students, I try to just give them like three notes mm -hmm. and have them improvise over those three notes while I play chord progression underneath or to just play open string basses while yeah. they improvise over just a few notes. And I have that little appendix at the end of my dissertation where I have these little exercises that I give students to help them improvise or introduce them to improvising in a more fixed way. Yeah. But free improvising is allowing you to let go of all of that uh, and actually to let your conditioning just come through because you've been influenced by so many different musicians and uh, so many different techniques and different things that you've experienced that, you know, the sound just comes out and it, it's a really beautiful thing. So it's not very nerve wracking for me to improvise at all compared to playing a piece which is kind of the reverse of what I had before. Uh, so when I, when I was younger, I started improvising when I was uh, busking, actually. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I just run out of repertoire. <laughs> I didn't want to repeat it constantly. So I found that after a while, I, I got better at it as I kept doing it. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> I hadn't fully understood at that point that the more you practice something, the better you get it. I didn't really integrate that concept deeply when I was in high school. So once it, it started to come together, I, I realized, wow, it's not really a gift that people have. It's something that you practice. And it's actually something that, well, it's, it's something that is, is more or less intrinsically done from the time you're a child. If you see children, um, which kind of contradicts my statement that it's not, not a gift, but the idea is that, you know, it, it's something you can get in, increase your skill with. But when you see someone who is a child, you know, 
before they're socially conditioned to understand what is good or what is bad or what is a nice sound or what is a bad sound, they will just hit objects. They'll try to make percussion with all kinds of different toys. They'll play with bells and all these different things to make sounds. And those sounds may sound disjointed or, you know, atonal <laughs> or whatever to us. But from their perspective, they're they're often in a moment of deep focus that you don't normally see from children. If you watch them when they're improvising, they, you know, there's a lot of great studies on children with improvising. If you watch them during this process and it, it's disturbing to see the level of focus that they have. It's really like nothing else exists, you know? I'm curious, have you yeah. um, posted any of your improvs on your channel? Yeah, I have. I've, I uh, actually did an improv, improv at a concert not too long ago, and I, I posted it on my Instagram. Uh, and I thought it was actually better than a lot of the, the, the program. <laughs> I had a lot more fun with it sometimes because, yeah. you know, I'm able to do things that I have been experimenting with because I often, you know, I don't invent techniques, but I, I come up with ideas that, you know, I haven't seen in compositions mm -hmm. or in compositions that I've made because when you spend enough time improvising, you will come up with idiomatic concepts that are unique. Yeah. Right? The task is different. The, the stress is, you know, you have to be in a special place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing that I've learned, uh, which goes against that whole busking story that I was telling before. It's, mm -hmm. it's just this idea that, you know, you have to choose very closely and very carefully when you decide to play for people. And, and this is kind of challenging for some people. Some people, you would say the opposite to them. They, they, they over-prepare and they don't show their work to anyone. This is not good. I used to be, but I used to be kind of the kind of person who was the very opposite of that. I would play for people under any circumstance and mm -hmm. have bad experiences and then be surprised why I had bad experiences. So I'm very, very proprietary about when I choose when to play mm -hmm. and, and these sorts of things now because I, I think it, it's more valuable for me to have a good experience, you know, mm -hmm. because the more you have bad experiences if you play or you're not prepared, then it sort of, sort of layers on you, you know? Yeah. And, and, it, yeah, so your confidence comes from having those good experiences. Yeah, and yeah. and hopefully connecting with your audience. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to feel like you don't care. You're struggling. It's not good. So. Yeah, I think when I had my worst struggles was when I felt like I needed to block out the audience, you know, rather than welcome mm -hmm. them. And actually, yeah. re reading Madeline's book, uh, The Art of Praxing, really helped me with that. Yeah, you know, I used to think like, I, you know, I, I used to have like the fight mentality, like versus the, the fight flight mentality, you know, I used to have more of the fight mentality, I need to destroy the audience, like, I need to, like you know, I had this very like hyper masculine kind of approach, mm -hmm. that was just like, you know, just I'm, I would go, I still kind of am like this a little bit, but just I, I think of more of it, like a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, I prepare for the, the the, the performance like it's a battle, mm -hmm. but I try to say, you know, I'm, I'm giving a gift to the audience. And, and I really like that analogy because the analogy goes very deep. Mm -hmm. If you say that something is a gift, it's like a child giving you a gift. You know, if, if your niece or, or whatever gives you a gift and they wrap it poorly and it's not really something you could ever use, maybe it's like a trinket that you'll never actually do anything with you're not going to reject it when you receive it you're going to actually be oh thank you because you understand that they took time 
to prepare this for, some, mm -hmm. for someone. And, and that's generally 90% of the time how an audience is going to respond to you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's how I, I prepare like a performance, like, you know, mentally, as you say, you know, I'm going to give a gift to people. I'm going to share something. This is the fruits of my labor. This is like the, the mental energy, spiritual energy that I'm putting into this. I, I want to share this with other people. But also, this is like a battle, you know, I could just get knocked out anytime. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so any anything can happen. And so I'm, I'm prepared for that as well. And so there's this kind of, kind of, I find there's this kind of dual nature about me that way. And, and you're Buddhist, you're practicing Buddhist. Yes, very much. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very, yeah. And, and I mean, that's, it's a very core part of my life. Um, yeah, and it inf informs basically everything I do uh to, to to the deepest level but yeah i i find that yeah yeah in my ignorance so, i didn't think that that attitude you have about performing uh preparing being a battle was very um very buddhist yeah <laughs> yeah so okay so like you know this is very interesting because you know the buddha was a warrior mm -hmm. people don't really realize this i mean he was not not a violent war not a person who fought people he was, of course, he trained as a general and and in the military when he was, you know, younger before long before he went on his journey and became enlightened. So, but before all that, he he was training in this way, and and later in life, you know, he is approached by Mara, you know, before enlightenment or whatever, and you know, Mara like throws an army of demons at him, mm -hmm. and and Buddha dispels them with he turns them all into flowers he turns all their weapons into flowers and so on so he's described you know in the buddhist literature over and over and over as the great conqueror because he's conquered samsara he's like conquered this idea of of what like this this reality that we buy into this reality of the self being paramount and the reality of the self being this fixed construct that uh, is a static entity that, you know, that we feel attached to, that we want to protect. Uh, and so, you know, for me, and, and I think that in, in all religions, we see this appear over and over and over. Like, I mean, in the Quran, you see this appear as well. Like this idea, like, of like, there's this, you don't like, we don't use this word in this, in this way, but like, I mean, when, when the prophet talks about the jihad, he talks about it, it's really like, a battle, a holy war with yourself, mm -hmm. because to actually train yourself to become a person who is uh, disciplined in any sort of way, especially if you're doing something that society doesn't intrinsically reward with money or fame or, you know, material objects like music, right? If you're doing anything like that, if you're doing any kind of pursuit that people aren't paying you for, that is driven by your own uh intrinsic values then you will encounter powerful resistance and that resistance isn't some kind of outside devilish force it's actually you and so you you have to everything is a battle you know and i think that's how i framed my life also i think it's also just something that's it's it's a working class mentality that a lot of people don't understand and i think that's fine uh, but the idea is is that you know when I was a kid, like I remember, like my dad freaked out 
when I told him I was a musician, I talked about this in my dissertation in this brief moment, but my dad said to me, he's like, he's like, you want to be a musician? Like what, what's wrong with you? You have to be a doctor. Cause I was good at school and, and academics and stuff and math and all these different things. Uh, and, and so he was like, why, why don't you be, become a doctor? Like, I don't understand. He's like, you know, and I said, he who goes into battle expecting to live will surely die. <laughs> you know, he who goes into battle expecting to die will surely live. And I found this to be true. You know, mm -hmm. I found this to be true. You know, if you feel like your back is to the wall, that's when you're most powerful. You know, horrible things could happen, of course, mm -hmm. but when your back is to the wall, you have special powers. You know, when, when you really have, you don't have one foot in the door and one foot out, you're complete, you have no other options available to you. There's no backup plans. Mm -hmm. This is when you are powerful, right? And so if you go into a performance and you say, I'm stepping onto that stage and that is it, right? I'm ready for anything. Like I, I could be destroyed by this performance. I'm ready for it. Like I'm ready for the worst case scenario. I'm ready for the best. Mm -hmm. I'm ready for everything in between. I'm ready for it. You know, like hit me with all you've got, you know, mm -hmm. you come in with that. It's, it's a very powerful thing. It, it allows you to be fearless, mm -hmm. you know, because you're not trying to protect the self. You're not trying to protect this, this thing. Um, you're, so I, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very interesting. I, I use kind of, you know, violent analogies sometimes to when I talk to myself mm -hmm. about these things, because, and, and you'll see anyone in my friend group will <laughs> see me say these kinds of things a lot, but you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that to every client that I work with or every coaching client, mm -hmm. because some people, res everybody responds differently and everyone has different associations with those ideas, mm -hmm. but I, I do find it very fascinating to see how people respond to those kinds of constructs. You know, it's like, like, if you think about life as a dragon to be slain, it's like, wow, that's exciting. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like scary. It's terrifying, right? It's like, oh my God, so many horrible things happen, with, but I'm going in there and I'm like, I'm going to fight a dragon. That's really exciting too. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's how I approach life. <laughs> Uh, Daniel, you've done a lot of martial arts. Is that yeah, it? yeah, for sure. That informs it as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you presently doing in terms of martial arts? So, uh, yeah, I have a karate instructor that I work with who's, who's one of my best friends. He's a black belt. And, uh, and I just I just do karate with him. I don't, I'm not interested in getting belts or anything like this, mm -hmm. but I, I do this. And I was doing Muay Thai for a while. And I, I'm like a secretly, I kind of like closeted. I, mean, I guess I'm uncloseting myself here. But I, I'm kind of a... a kind of low-key MMA enthusiast. I'm very obsessed with like these kinds of things. And this is surprising to be like, oh, you're a Buddhist. You shouldn't watch that. You shouldn't do this. But no, what they do is amazing. When I see two people go into a cage and I see them, you know, do the scariest thing. I mean, they're in front of all these people. They have performance anxiety just like we do, if not amplified, you know, in, in, in profound ways, because they are preparing all their life. They have to condition their body in a certain way. They have to do all these things and then they have to they have to fight another human being who's fighting them and then you know and the crowd is cheering and all these things and there's blood and it's horrifying and then at the end of it you know what really is amazing to me at the end of it they all say you know they're, they're hugging each other in there and they're saying congratulations and they're shaking each other's hand you know this is impressive to me you know this this tells me a lot about 
the best in human nature. You know, that's, that's, you know, if people were doing that more often, instead of actually fighting for real, mm -hmm. like the world would be better. And I think that this is something that has it, like helped my life a lot, just being able to find the fight inside myself and not be able to, you know, deny it, not be able to say that it's the evil part of me or something, but to actually look it deeply in the eyes and see, you know, we all have a destructive capability. We all have a part of us that we don't like or we're afraid of that we're not willing to acknowledge, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And if you come into contact with it and you look it deeply in the eyes and you actually, you actually like accept it, then it can't hurt you. It loses its power. But if you allow, you know, I've been through so many horrible things in life you know, with my upbringing, all these things. And I, I carried a lot of anger when I was young, mm -hmm. you know, but martial arts has helped me really, <laughs> the irony is violence has helped me, <laughs> has helped me to, to let go of that, to actually see that, you know, this is, this is a part of, of my existence and, and it's okay for me to be this way. As long as I can control my body, I can work hard to control my mind. I can do the best I can and just look unflinchingly at my opponent, right? Mm -hmm. um, then I, I can, I, I won't be uh, affected by rage and all these things that happen, you know? So, mm -hmm. so very, I guess this interview is getting quite intimate compared to anything else I've ever done, but that, that's really the truth that I, I feel. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Wilford Laurier, where you're um, a professor mm -hmm. now, you're teaching a course on performance anxiety. Is it just sort of a general first year course or is it more of a seminar? Um, so actually, uh, it was completed last year, uh, last okay. fall, uh, and it was for it was a third year course. So it was, it was a very scientific kind of based class. And uh, I, you know, it was a very challenging thing to design because I, I designed the syllabus myself and I I uh, was very fortunate to have the administration approve it and, and be on board with something so challenging. I, I'm not really aware of how challenging it would be to do this mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we're working with people's vulnerabilities. We're working with people's deepest fears in some ways, right? And, I mean, the, the fear of rejection and humiliation is a core, core fear. It's not something that is, uh, all, all animals have this. In fact, if you try to laugh at your dog when they do something silly, they will respond. You know, it's, it's a horrible thing. The fear of humiliation is a deep, deep, deep intrinsic feeling. Um, so, you know, when you work with people's vulnerabilities, you have to be very sensitive to the way they respond to stress. It's a very challenging thing. What was very challenging about the class was that every single person was from a different background, a different sector mm -hmm. of the music program. So we had some people in performance, some people in community music, some people in music therapy mm -hmm. and uh, education and all, all those other things. And, and that, that's what made it very challenging because I, I initially designed the class for performance majors. Um, and I didn't realize that not all students had had preparation to actually have, really performed for people mm -hmm. before. So I wanted the class to be very hands-on. I didn't want the class to just be me talking and mm -hmm. no doing, no actual engaging with the experience of performing. So I, on the Tuesday, 
we had uh, a lecture on different topic every week and it was progressive and then on the thursdays we would perform for each other and then talk about what we experienced and it was really amazing you know because it is truly a universal phenomenon we don't really find people who go into a performance and they feel nothing like and they just have this stone cold confidence even when people seem like they're going into flow or all these different things these arousal symptoms are universal mm -hmm. right so they're they're having those even even when the performance is going you know at that top level or even you know when it's going poorly people are always responding uh in in kind of with similar themes that we see repeating over and over with variations and it was it was really nice to watch how how people evolved throughout the class because i saw a lot of really powerful transformations that shocked me mm -hmm. uh, that I, I saw people start to understand what confidence means and actually become more confident when they were doing this and it was a uh, it was really really a pleasure to see that happen it was a big class too i mean uh i i remember i i the administration was like yeah you, you have this course it's gonna be great and like oh i'm like oh that's that's wonderful and then registration comes by and then a few weeks later i, I contacted him i was like oh do you know if anyone signed up for this course because i'm not sure how it was advertised or something like yeah you know it's full there's 50 people <laughs> okay get ready I was like, okay good <laughs> so clearly there is a huge demand for this information and i have noticed that because you know, I've done lectures at all the major universities in Canada, except for maybe UBC, and I have noticed that people uh, just really, really respond to it. They're, they're, they immediately respond to my proposals. Uh, it's, it's pretty shocking <laughs> at the kind of response that I've been getting. And, and what that tells me, because I, I'm not saying anything especially profound compared to my peers uh, in the field of music performance anxiety. Yeah. I, I'm talking about it generally in these lectures as a, as, as a general topic, you know, uh, what, what I'm finding is that there is a deep hunger for this information because it's not being discussed. And I think the reason it's not being discussed is because teachers feel that it's a, like, a, like a wrong thing to do to discuss music performance anxiety with their students like it's a it's a boundary that should only be crossed by a therapist. But you're a coach. And when you see a sports psychologist, when you see someone in sports um, coaching their team, they they are working with people's minds. Yeah, this is supposed to be physical, but of course it's it's always mental, right? So uh, we we have to be engaging with that. And 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 of course, if someone experiences trauma or they experience adverse symptoms like psychosis or things like this, you have to refer out. You have to. You, you have to know, like, I mean, this is where my wheelhouse ends and this is where other professionals are qualified to do this. But when we're talking about um, the, the universal phenomenon that is music performance anxiety, if that is true, what I'm saying, and what I'm saying is a pretty radical statement, but I mean, it's not, I'm not the first person to say it. Diana T. Kenny, the world's leading expert on this, has said the same thing. She's described it as a universal phenomenon. If it truly is true, that is a universal phenomenon then this is definitely in the wheelhouse of musicians. Yeah. Right? This is something that is, is actually as, I mean, we, it's, it's foolish to have this kind of distinction between technique and musicality. But I mean, if, if we are to think of a music lesson as addressing these core ideas, technique and musicality, well, there's a third thing that's obviously being missed, and that's 
that's the psychology of performance. That's the experience of, of going up there. And it's that gap between what you did in the practice room and what you did in a performance. And, and yeah, and, and that, that gap is, is something that we learn to address in one way or another if we get to any kind of level as a player. And sometimes it feels more haphazard than others. And so everyone feels like it's a kind of random thing. And I think the most common answer that I get, which is not entirely, it's, it's really not, not incorrect. I mean, this is really how musicians approach it because this is what they know. They say, well, make sure you technically know it flawlessly in the practice room. And then when you go in, then you'll be able to do it. And that's true most of the time, most of the time. But what can often happen too, is that we get on stage and we know it really well, but the doubt sets in. It's like, do I really know it though? Are you sure I know it? <laughs> and then we talk ourselves out of actually knowing it. And this can happen, you know, anytime with people. If, if, if I, I could do this, we can do this with any kind of thing we find confident, right? So most people, like 99.99999% of the audience who's gonna watch this is going to be able to hold a spoon, for example. Like they're gonna feel pretty confident about holding a spoon. Like you're gonna say, can you hold a spoon? They're gonna say confidently, yes, I can hold a spoon in one way or another. And are you going to think hard about holding a spoon? Probably not. You're gonna feel confident. It's gonna be below the threshold of difficulty for you. And so you're gonna do it in a way that you may not even notice the spoon is in your hand. Now, if you take that level of confidence and you apply it to performance, if you bring the, the piece to that level, that's great. But what about that spoon analogy again? I mean, what if I saw you holding a spoon and I said, you know, Leo, the way you hold that spoon is kind of weird. <laughs> I, I don't know, are you supposed to hold a spoon like that? You're gonna, what? And all of a sudden you're going to be analyzing yourself. You're gonna say, yeah, well, maybe, maybe the way I am holding, I don't know. And you might find that you have like some minor impairments in your ability to use a spoon for a moment as that confidence gets affected. And, and the irony is that we don't have to have another person do that for us, although we easily can. We usually have ourselves doing that. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're kind of saying, oh, you know, you can do it with someone's walk. You say, oh, you ever notice you kind of have this weird thing when you walk? People will suddenly, even though they've been walking their entire life or, or you know, using their legs or some or something in some sort of way, you know, um, they, they will find, oh, you know, suddenly it's a challenge. And, and this is what we do to ourselves when our preparation is, is large. So how do we deal with that, that self-doubt, that, that judgment? That's really what music performance anxiety treatment is about. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's that gap. And that's what teachers can do. They can train people to have that, co that, that confidence and, and hear that voice and, and be able to look that voice in the eye and say, hello, voice, I see you. I see what you're trying to do. I see how you're trying to help, but I don't need you to be here right now. I don't need you on the field with me. We've got this, you know. So for your clients um, who aren't your students, like when you coach for performance anxiety, are you doing it over Zoom? Yeah, you uh, always over Zoom. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I, I find it's much easier that way, and uh, you know. But if I do have the students at Laurie, I mean, my my students. Uh, I mean, we, we inherently incorporate that into the lessons, uh, maybe with less intensity or, or focus on that particular thing. But of course, that's a core part of my pedagogy would be. Uh, and when, when we address that, it's, it's 
is always unique to the person's instrument. You know, um, I've worked with different instrumentalists and violinists. Like I was working with a French horn player the other day, a violinist also. And I, I find that they all have idiosyncratic approaches to uh, to music performance anxiety, but it's it's really the same concepts appearing again and again. And I think the most difficult thing for young people is that they play repertoire that's too hard. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand the fundamentals of what they're doing. And it, the fundamentals is something we work on for the rest of our life, but just really um, being able to approach simple tasks and being able to do them with a level of ease that we hold a spoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often think that I have too many notes to learn for me to worry about how to just do this major second really in tune. You know, it's, a, it's not, you know, um, so, so I think that that's the challenge. You know? mm-hmm. Might be interesting to wrap this up with, I'm just curious in terms of balancing your life because you're a mm-hmm. performer, you're teaching at the university level and presumably private student as well as coaching. And how do you, how do you keep balance in your own life so, so that you can get through each week? <laughs> yeah, well, my life's not that hard. Okay. You know, like I'm not a coal miner. That's hard. <laughs> yeah. That's like really hard. Like my life's pretty good. You know, like I I play music for a living. I make all my money from music. I mean, what can I expect? I mean, it's great. So sometimes I get a little stressed out, but I'm very grateful. And I think that's the most important thing. I, yeah. I, I remain very grateful for what I'm doing. And just remember, put things into this perspective, like, dude, you play guitar and you like live in Toronto playing guitar. That doesn't make sense. How, you know, that's, that's a lot to be grateful for. I mean, maybe I should expect more, but I think that that's a very, very nice thing that keeps me grounded. Just to remember, you know, that you know, I'm just a person who plays guitar, and to be grateful for the fact that I'm able to do this um, and not have to work in a grocery store. Like many people who I know, who I, I respect, who are struggling, uh, to have to work in in jobs that they hate, to experience bosses that hurt them. And I see my students; some of them are wealthy, and they come in and they they hate their jobs and they hate their lives sometimes, but they love guitar so much. And, you know, to be able to just do this, uh, I, I think it's easy to find balance when I put that into perspective. I don't always remember this, mm-hmm. but when I do, it's it's very useful. So um, another thing I find that is very helpful is to, you know, see my life as an arrow. You know, I can't do too many things at once. But if I see everything in my life is serving one singular purpose, then I find that that's easier. I mean, like everything in my life is driven by the ethics that I've learned from Buddhism everything in, like in my life is, is driven by this. Mm-hmm. And so if that if, if that's the arrow, then music is just a vehicle for me to help understand compassion for others. You know, this work with music performance anxiety is helping me understand that as well. And it's given me a whole new lease on life for performing. Because, I mean, if I'm saying all of these things, I can, I can talk all I want as an academic, right? You know, it's very easy to be an academic because you don't have to, you know, do it. But to actually live that life and, and to actually have to play in, in a concert, I have to really be living out the strategies that I'm recommending for others mm-hmm. and use them and implement them and, and get better at using them. Uh, and that's something that has given me a whole new lease on performing. It gives me like a reason to want to improve constantly and to to become as good as I can possibly be because the more I do that, the more, you know, 
that what I'm saying is, is true and the more I can, I can actually help other people. I can say, see, it worked for me for this reason. These strategies are actually effective. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that has really helped me a lot uh, to find balance. Of. But in, in other things, I mean, I, I just love learning languages. I love learning all these things. I'm learning Japanese. I, I, I've been learning Japanese for many years. I, I just try to spend time with people, talk to people a lot, spend time with people I like, and um, yeah, just try to work out. I find that the fitness has helped me a lot. Uh, in terms of managing myself, if I make my life purposely hard in my workout, then like life itself is not that bad. <laughs> so that's another way I find balance. <laughs> if I can describe that as balance. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree. Uh, yeah. With all these things, they really resonate strongly with me. Yeah, it's been really inspiring talking to you today. Thank you so much. for. Thank you, Leah your perspectives and, and also sharing your music, which will be a beautiful. Thank, part thank you so much. Yeah. It was really an honor to be a part of this podcast. Uh, you're doing great things uh, with all these diverse musicians that you're talking to. And uh, it's just amazing to see the perspectives that you bring out of people. And uh, you're very, very good at interviewing. <laughs> you're able to get uh, the, the really, the really deepest part of people out very, very effectively. So I really enjoyed being a part of that. And uh, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks for following the series on your favorite podcast player and sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, all of which help find new listeners. I have lots more episodes coming in this season three with a fascinating diversity of musicians and their stories and music. I'm an independent podcaster who does all the many jobs required to produce the series, and there are a lot of costs I bear as well. Please consider either buying me a virtual coffee as a tip or becoming a monthly supporter starting at $3 Canadian. The link is in the description. Have a great week.